1: And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This week, our listener feedback is another embarrassment of riches.
0: We'll do our best to cover everything from soda to Syria in today's episode of The Briefcase. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance.
1: Welcome to The Briefcase. We're going to start today by sharing a few of the amazing notes we received in response to our question, what does Pantsuit Politics mean to you? Uh, if you send us a note, please email Beth at PantsuitPoliticsShow Politics Show with your address so that we can ship you some signed convention swag. Uh, you're probably going to have to read all these because I'll start crying. Uh,
0: it's we- been pretty amazing. So the first note that I wanted to share a little bit of is from Megan. She says, when the whole election cycle began last year, we were in the middle of watching mesothelioma take over my mother. Things were not so great. I was not so strong. I wanted to be able to talk politics with those I loved because we have always had that openness with each other, but the distraction, fear, and grief had us all too worn out, even for friendly fire. So she goes on to talk about how she found us And here's how she wraps up. What Pantsuit Politics gives me is those family discussions back. I feel at home when listening to you talk together and to the listener. No agendas, no vitriol, just a couple of friends talking about important stuff without the bull crud. Or, as you say, nuance. Megan, thank you. That's so sweet. It's so... I mean, I couldn't have imagined somebody writing something like that when we launched a few months ago. So it really does mean the world. I totally agree. I don't know if I can get through these. And I'm not like the crying one of the two. Of I'm, us. The, I'm the crier. Yes. I cry. I like to cry. So I'm going to do my best. So then Kate made me laugh so much because she said, in part, I particularly appreciate your show as a progressive Democrat atheist Hillary Clinton supporter peacefully married to a libertarian Catholic Bernie Sanders supporter. I, I don't know how that works. I just straight up do not know how that I works. I think it's amazing. And also Kate is awesomely a second two year in her second two year term as a city councilor in North Adams, Massachusetts. So that's awesome, Kate. Thank you so much for listening. Okay, and then here's another one that like just touches my heart. This is from another Megan, who came across Pantsy Politics and iTunes, and she was four months pregnant with her son when she found us. I listened to the podcast during my 15-hour labor. Now I have a perfect and amazing four-month-old little boy and listen to the podcast while nursing and playing with my son. Pantsuit Politics has been with me during the most challenging and rewarding time of my life, becoming a mother. I'll never be able to properly thank you for the amazing commentary and support you've provided me throughout this time in my life.
1: I'm not capable of pansy politics babies cuz we have another one coming from a dear listener Dante who provides our music soon and just pansy politics babies I just I can't. We need we need
0: some onesies. We need onesies. <gasps> we do need onesies. We need like keep it nuanced onesies. We'll get on that. All-Star Bren, who we've mentioned a number of times, and who did a voice memo that we played earlier, he talked about how the show means so much to me because it has given me an opportunity to make my opinion known and challenged outside of Facebook, and to actually discuss a subject that most of my friends and family never want to do. The show has made me a more critical thinker and a better tweeter. Before I tweet (laughs) or post, I now ask myself, would this be something the hashtag PP family approve of? I can't even with that. Oh my god. Not saying everything I say is... 100% nuanced, but I am making a conscious effort. You know what, Bren? We're not 100% nuanced either. You're you're doing pretty awesome. I like to think of Bren as our North Star. That's how, I like to th- that's how I think of him. He's like our guiding light. I think that's pretty beautiful. Bren is also like a person who wrote a nomination for me for an award in my community, which I can hardly talk about without tearing up either. So thanks, Bren. Okay, one more, and then we're going to move on to the news, I promise. But you guys. Okay, this is from our third Megan. Fancy politics means so much to me, both on a political and on a personal level. On a political level, it gives me hope. Our political discourse is so polarized and angry and calm, nuanced, bipartisan conversations are exactly what we need to get our country to a better place. You're filling a gaping hole in our discourse. I've recommended your show to so many friends who love it, which tells me that plenty of people are starving for a better dialogue. On a more personal level, your show has made me a better person. I know it sounds cheesy, but it's true. Taking the time to reflect on what your show means to me made me realize that since I started listening in January, I've become quicker to give the benefit of the doubt. I'm a pretty liberal Democrat, but I often agree with Beth, or at least find myself nodding along thinking, well, that's a good point. The lack of nuance in our political dialogue means that I've rarely had the chance to hear the perspective of a moderate Republican. And now that I better understand the moderate foundation of the party, I find it easier to see both sides of an issue. Listening to your show has helped me have more respect and understanding for those who disagree with me. I officially teared up that time and I've already read these. So I love it and I appreciate you guys so much and send me your addresses so I can mail you your convention swag. Okay, so we're going to go on to the Friday feedback, uh, some of which is, is, most of which is not so heartwarming. So thanks for sticking with us if you're not a, a kind of hug it out person. First thing I wanted to say is we know we've been having some sound issues, so we're working on it. We're hoping that this episode will be the beginning of the end of the sound issues. Thank you for that feedback. It really helps us. I know that we heard from Hunter, Aaron, and Jen... There may have been others, so thanks for letting us know what you're experiencing because we don't ever want to be hard to listen to.
1: Okay, so the first piece of feedback we're going to talk about is Lewis.
0: Mainly I just want to talk about that he used the phrase,
1: rustled my jimmies, because I thought that was hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) And he claims he learned this phrase from a Kentuckian, so he says I'm not really stealing it, I'm just taking it back. So he says that Beth really rustled his jimmies, when he was, t- she was talking about Obama's red line in the Syrian conflict, and I, you know, I kind of felt like I failed, Lewis, because he pointed out that that we did enta- we, we set, we drew the line with regards to chemical weapons, but ultimately we able to come to a diplomatic solution where the Syrian regime voluntarily gave up their chemical weapons. Um, long-term efforts, thanks to the State Department and the Russian counterpart and the threat of force, he says it was a victory for diplomacy and could have potentially led to greater cooperation with Russia. Although clearly that's not how it turned out. So he was sort of praising that moment as a, uh, you know, victory for diplomacy and remembered it very differently than you did, Beth.
0: Well, I think that's all true. What I think we disagree about is when when Obama made the red line comments, I don't think anybody heard that as only Getting rid of chemical weapons, I think that sounded like a promise of regime change. Because, as anyone who's seen the news today and that horrific picture of the child who was injured in Syria knows, the Assad regime has not backed off. And Russian involvement in Syria and the Middle East in general has escalated. So, I think what was the mistake in retrospect, look, there's no good answer on Syria. I was watching uh, Richard Haas talk about Syria on Morning Joe this week, and he's someone I really respect. And he said, there is not a good outcome in Syria. The best that we could hope for are some regions that are safe for people to live in. It's Mm. a horrible situation. So again, I give Obama lots of grace on the way he's handled this, because who knows what's right. But I think the mistake was using that red line language because I think the world expected that that was going to be the end of the Assad regime if they crossed that line. And instead, and and Lou acknowledges this, we, we added some legitimacy to that regime by negotiating a diplomatic solution. Mm. So I'm not I mean, saying it was the wrong thing to do, but I'm saying I do think it undermined our credibility as a player on the world stage. I don't think that... I'm not really sure I buy the
1: idea that our credibility on the world stage comes from this idea that, you know, we say what we mean and we mean what we say, because I think things like the Vietnam War and the Iraqi War, you know, it's really not about what we say. It's about the force we have behind our decisions, for me, I guess. I think that that sort of... Um, giving more credence to this sort of language of honor, or I don't know how to describe it, than really is probably accurate with regards to world players. I mean, I think it is about not whether they think you mean your threats, but whether they know or not you can back them up. And in that way, I'm not particularly worried. That being said, I think that mistakes have been made with regards to Syria. I think too many people have died. I mean, I don't know. I just don't think that it's necessarily... I think there's always this... this this narrative that it's going to under, you know, undermine our credibility on the world stage. And I don't really think our credibility is based on, you know, we change our mind all the time. We th- so it's they thing and one and do another. It's not like that's a new thing. It's just I think it's more about, you know, the, the, the pragmatic reality of your ability to back up what you say, not necessarily whether you always do
0: it. I completely disagree in that. I think President Obama is always very careful with his words, and when he used an a expression—because of what you said, because there's maneuvering, because circumstances change, because sometimes we do something different than we thought we might do—but when he used the language red line, I think that meant something to the world because he doesn't just spout off. And one of— I think the most dangerous propositions of a Trump presidency is that he does just spout off. And I do think what the president of the United States says matters a lot. I mean it matters in our country. You think about the implications and the repercussions already of of Trump as the Republican nominee, some of the things he said. I think that the president's language is really, really important. And I do think that it matters to our allies. I think it matters to our enemies. And I'm not trying to come down super hard on Obama. I just I just want to acknowledge, you know, I don't disagree with Lou that the diplomacy involved was commendable what I think is problematic is that we indicated something to the world that we didn't follow through on and and look I don't know if we realistically could have followed through on it yeah so it, it's a really tough situation and it's not it, it's it's something that that I feel very conflicted about and that I worry about a lot and it's it's one of my major criticisms of, of President Obama's foreign policy that's all The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjun ecom slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system.
1: .com/pantsy
0: So we got a wonderful Facebook message from Megan who talked about We got a lot of Megans going today which I think We is really great. do. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm going to I'm going to title this episode Megans.
0: In our episode on resentment, the politics of resentment, we talked about baby boomers and millennials quite a bit but not about Gen X. And And Megan sent us a great message talking about everything that Gen X has been through. She said, we came into the workforce as young adults during Reagan, and while there may have been a boon credited to Reaganomics, we were competing with this huge generation in front of us for the last of the lifetime careers that used to exist. And that made us slackers. We came hard into adulthood, settled down, straightened up, got our shit together and started families and bought our houses, looked to our futures. And then in our late 30s to mid 40s, we were hit with a a huge financial crisis that had so many of us seeing our retirements disappear at an age when that is so scary. How would we recoup in time for retirement? That's a major fear. Then many of us found ourselves laid off from long-term jobs back into the workhouse and competing for lower-level jobs. Only now, with this huge generation behind us, we have been squeezed from both sides. We have been labeled poorly and dismissed from conversations about policies that affect us the most. There are approximately 55 million of us. We are all of voting age, and we are paying attention. Megan represents her generation beautifully in talking about the struggles that Gen X has had. I certainly see this in the workplace all the time. I think you see it in Hollywood in a lot of ways. I mean, so th- there is a lot to understanding more about Gen X from this lens of what is fueling the anxiety that's out there, what's fueling the anger that's out there, and how do we deal with it? So I really appreciated that message, Megan.
1: Well, and it's just so interesting. You kind of, you, it's just from a numbers game the baby boomers is a huge generation, and the millennials are a huge generation, and you've got poor Gen X in the middle, like fighting for attention. I feel her on that. I think my husband considers himself a member of; he's right on the border, but more Gen X than anything else. Whereas I more identify with millennials. But I mean, I think it's definitely an interesting point in that they sometimes get left out of the conversation.
0: So we have two more pieces. If of- feedback to cover, and one we're going to discuss quite a bit. But we wanted to mention a a really helpful note that we got from Sheila about the question and answer episode we did. We talked about a question in that episode on how teachers can discuss the election. And Sheila pointed out that teachers in the K-12 setting have very limited First Amendment rights when it comes to discussing their personal opinions. And uh, she notes a Garcetti decision as well as a Seventh Circuit decision, and we'll put the link for those decisions in our show notes. So she said she just wants to be sure that teachers don't get in trouble because it's a super slippery slope.
1: Yeah, I was so glad she shared that with us. I think that you know, I don't want to get I don't want to get anybody in trouble. So. That's right, definitely. <laughs> no. We love our
0: teacher listeners.
1: So Lisa also wrote into us, um, and she. Wanted to know what we thought about funding initiatives through a soda tax. Her Democratic mayor, Jim Kenney, has passed a 1.5 cent per ounce tax on all sugary and diet beverages, and the tax is expected to raise about 91 million annually. And the money will use not only to fund pre-K and 25 other community-based schools, but also towards improving existing parks, libraries, and recreational centers. Uh, She likes the. She thinks that's a great solution,
0: but she sort of wanted to know what we thought. I have lots of thoughts, Beth. Do you want to start or do you want me to? I really feel conflicted about consumption taxes like this because, you know, on the one hand, my opinion is funding schools in the community where those schools sit makes all the sense in the world, and we're all responsible for funding those schools, and so let's do it. And You can tax anything I buy to fund a school. That's how I feel. On the other hand, I do think especially a soda tax is going to disproportionately affect lower-income families, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And the other thing that bothers me is that there's, like, this morality component. And, and I am such a hypocrite on this because I always think about things like cigarettes or illegal marijuana and think, yeah, let's just tax the daylights out of it, and it's a win-win, right? But then that's so inconsistent with everything I believe about what government should do. And, and it's easier for me in the context of something like soda to say, well, no, like, wait a second. Just because the government has decided to prioritize, you know, a, a healthy weight or or something like that doesn't mean that we should all have to kind of pay the price for someone's idea of what's moral and good and healthy. So I'm I'm a little bit all over the place on whether that's an appropriate exercise of governmental power. But I guess my ultimate feeling is, We have to do what we have to do to have properly funded schools. I, luckily, am not conflicted and hold no inconsistencies.
1: Tax the crap out of it. I like to say that sodas are the new cigarettes. Um, It's not for me about moralizing from the government. It's from a health perspective. They are terrible. They wreak havoc on our society generally. Um, And my, my biggest problem is not only with regards to adults, but with kids and I think that if every if if sugar was not addictive, then sure we can have this conversation about make people in their free will and their choice to do what they want. But it is, and so are in much the same way cigarettes are. I mean, I had this conversation with somebody, and she was like, "People are going to do what they want to do." And this woman was in her 60s, and I said, "I don't know if you remember. I'm sure you do because I don't. I wasn't alive, but you were. Everybody smoked." Everybody, dog smoked, baby smoked. They had a smoking shack for teenagers at my high school, a place for the teenagers to go smoke. Everybody smoked. And then we taxed the living daylights out of it because it's terrible for you. And now fewer people smoke and isn't that grand. And I would be more than happy for that to happen with sodas. I truly believe we will look back in 20 years at sodas much like we do cigarettes and think, oh my God, we passed out Cokes to kids what the hell were we thinking? I mean, I I feel very strong. I feel very strongly about soda. I just think it's truly wretched, truly, truly wretched.
0: So I don't think we should pass out soda to kids in our school. I think that's different from a tax on soda. Like, are we going to tax but donuts and ice cream? And, yeah, I'm fine and with that. Snickers, yeah. Like, I I just think that there is a point at which—and we've talked on the show before about how everything that we think is healthy changes all the time. I, I don't know. I don't like the government, like, making those decisions. I also want our schools funded. I hate that we have to fund our schools with new taxes. Doesn't that seem insane? I mean, I guess my my
1: thing, though, is that taxing soda would decrease the amount of soda kids drink, and I'm totally
0: okay with that. But then you, and, like, you know, jeopardize the effect of, like, what you want is more people drinking soda. If you're trying to fund your schools through a tax on soda, you're trying to get revenue. So you want everybody well, drinking I all mean, soda. soda. Well, that's
1: fine with me because my motivation is not from – I mean, I think it's great if you can use the money for something positive, but I want to tax it because I want fewer people drinking soda because I don't I, – there is not I – I would – Bet my house, we're not going to be 50 years from now, and they're going to go, Oh, all that nutritional advice about soda was crazy, and now everybody drinks soda all the time. Like, that's never going to happen, ever. Like, it's terrible for you. And, you know, it's just, I think that it's just, it's a nutritional thing we're sort of lagging on. But I think we do this. We figure out something is bad, and there's societal costs for people consuming it, and we make it harder for them to consume it. And I'm totally. OK with that. And if we can make tax dollars off of it, you know, that's why I like legalized marijuana. Take that money. Do something good with it. Fine with me. Don't I don't care.
0: Yeah, I, I don't like it. But here's what I don't like more. And I feel like this is a problem in communities and states across the country that our schools are somehow this extracurricular thing for our yeah. our governments. Or we have
1: to trick people into funding them. We don't we shouldn't have to hide it we shouldn't have to like sneak it in in another way. We're going to fund we're going to pay taxes to pay for the schools and everybody's going to be fine with it.
0: And to me that's like priority number 1. If if our income tax dollars are being used on other things and we can't get to schools and so we have to have lotteries and soda taxes what are we doing we need to go back to the drawing board and say what else is going on here there have to be like i just think it indicates that our priorities are incorrect at every level when our schools end up being just a side note that we've got to pull some dollars for from somewhere else Okay, the last email that we wanted to talk about, I lied. I said there were two more. There are (laughs) three. We got a really nice message from Aston. We really appreciated it. A number of things came up in that message. But one, she was talking about our episode, our most recent episode, where we discussed ethics and Hillary Clinton. And the point is disappointment in how Hillary Clinton has reacted in the aftermath she sees no humility, no remorse, nothing that resembles a sorry I messed up from her. And it was so interesting the timing that we got this message because I ended up going back last night to watch a two-week-old episode of Meet the Press because I love Chuck Todd and I will take him in old news as well. And Tim Kane was on and I was gobsmacked by how much better Tim Kane is at answering the email question than Hillary Clinton is he he just said in his very like Tim Kane is everyone's stepdad way yeah she did it she's sorry she's learned some things not going to happen again and I was like you know what cool I'm good that's all I need to hear It's really <laughs> yeah. that's what I need to hear I don't need prosecution I don't need any of this other stuff I need to hear sorry that was my bad not going to do it again learn some things
1: yeah, and I don't know. I, I mean, I don't think I don't think the point is lost. I think that that it, I mean, I agree. She's not particularly good at that. I think. I, I mean, I don't know. I wonder if it's just because she. It's you know, she feels like if she gives an inch, they'll take a mile. If she shows any weakness, I mean, can you imagine how ecstatic certain people would be to have Hillary Clinton in on video footage going, "I'm sorry, I messed up." Oh my God, they play it on a loop on twice the speed so they could fit more in in a 24-hour period you know so i mean i wonder if that's what her
0: motivation is i don't think that's necessarily a reason not to do it but that would be a better loop for her than all of the things that she has tried in responding to that question yeah it would be so totally get that and and that is something that i say all the time about hillary clinton and bill clinton it's just like Even if all of these, you know, we have a lot of, we got a lot of feedback from listeners talking about how all these controversies about her are manufactured and, you know, we're all in different places about how seriously we take those things and that's cool. But the point is, do they ever learn? Because there is always smoke with the Clintons, even when there's no fire and even if people want to believe that there's, you know, conspiracies around them creating that smoke, it's always there. Very excited about our Tuesday episode. Sarah did a wonderful primer on welfare reform and we're gonna dive into that subject on Tuesday.
1: It was very intimidating. I wanted to do well by all of you. I hope you enjoyed it.
0: I thought you did fantastic for what that's worth. Thank you.
1: We also want to thank Kate for subscribing to our show for being a new subscriber. If you'd like to subscribe to be to give monthly support to Pantsu Politics, which would be amazing. You can do it as little as $5 a day, just, you know, sort of send us the the proverbial cup of coffee. That would be great or uh, $10, $25, whatever you want. Uh, We also want to thank Sean Burkhead for his generous donation. And you can either donate or subscribe to support the show on pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And also we want to send thanks to Sydney, Nicolette, and Paige, who are our gold star monthly subscribers. We really, really appreciate you guys. Um, It really helps with the cost of the show and helps us expand and find new opportunities. And we really can't thank you enough.
0: And thank you for the many wonderful iTunes reviews this week. It's been amazing. So thank you for that. And we'll be back with you on Tuesday to talk welfare reform and other issues. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.